0: Mental illness, gay stereotypes, and turning birds back into dinosaurs. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike.
1: He's got he's got Even though he may not understand,
0: anyway. he problems, he won't solve them. But i will talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. This week I had the honor of hanging out with a bunch of people in Atlanta at an event called Belong, and it was great to get to know you and hear your stories and understand where you're going in your walk of faith as it incorporates science. We're going to do more of those in the future, so keep your ears peeled, but for now, let's get it started.
1: Hey, Science Mike. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of scientific evidence on this one. But um, I'd just love to hear some thoughts and theories on the whole thing. So my question is, uh, how much did God shape evolution? So, um, you know, was he just like, I'm just going to do a little Big Bang and uh, see what happens. And then when humans came around, it was like, oh, cool. Or was it all a plan where it was, all right, amoebas, dinosaurs,
2: asteroid, and humans. You know what I mean? So let me know. Hi, Mike. Uh, I'm Tim from England, and I've got a question about evolution. Uh, I don't have an issue with all the stuff to do with connecting the Genesis creation accounts to evolution. I've managed to resolve all that in my mind, but my issue is more to do with what evolution says about the character of God. Now, in my mind, it's pretty clear that uh, the Bible reveals ultimately that God is love. And we see that most clearly in Jesus and that God is for the weak, he's for the vulnerable, he's for the marginalized, he's for the poor. And Jesus said, didn't he, at one point that it's the meek and the poor and the merciful, the peacemakers, they're the ones who will inherit the kingdom. It seems to me, though, that that stands in stark contrast to the process of evolution, which says that it's the fittest, the strongest, the most powerful. They're the ones who will survive. They're actually the ones who are inheriting the world. And we see that in nature, but we see it culturally as well, don't we? The richest, the most successful, the most beautiful, the most powerful, they're the ones that are dominating society. Now, I know as as humans we can transcend those evolutionary instincts, but what does it say about a God who came up with that means of creating us in the first place? So I hope that question makes sense, Mike. Uh, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Uh, Keep up the good work, brother. It's much needed and greatly appreciated.
0: Well, the first thing I'd like to say is that there is no authoritative answer on specifically how much God shaped evolution. And here's why there is no authoritative answer on exactly who God is. It depends on who you ask. For example, if you were to ask an atheist... How much did God shape evolution? An atheist is going to say, none at all, because there is no God, right? Whereas if you asked a pantheist, someone who believes that the universe is God, how much did God shape evolution? You know, a pantheist is going to say, well, evolution is simply a part of God in the same way that a metabolism is part of you. If you were to ask a panentheist, that's someone who believes that uh, the universe is God But that God is also more than the universe uh, a, th- a panentheist might say that God is you know, Directing evolution as a nature of God's being If you were to ask an open theist that someone who believes in a God Much like a traditional theist But also believes that that God Is not binding the future And therefore not traditionally omniscient This is an idea of God that people use to Try to clear up some logical contradictions To traditional theism Well, that person might say that God created a universe that continues creating more. And that's part of how God designed the universe. And that's an interesting idea if you look at the way that the Big Bang sort of led to matter and hydrogen and helium. And then how gravity sort of led to stars and galaxies. And as those stars exploded and created heavier elements, led to solar systems with planets and ultimately to life through a biogenesis and evolution uh, if you were to ask a theist who believes in evolution and they might call themselves a theistic evolutionist or an evolutionary creationist, kind of depending on where they lie on a spectrum and how much they care about p r and to whom well, that person would say that you know if evolution is true, then it is the work of God in its entirety. It depends on who you ask. Uh, if you're asking me, I will tell you, I don't know. I don't know how much God shaped evolution because I don't actually know very much about God and we'll talk more about that in the next question about uh, why God is so mysterious but you know I don't know if if God has what we would call traditional will or consciousness or agency because those are very limiting very human terms they speak of our reference frame is God you know sort of a deistic God that created the universe and? and just lets it keep running? Is God intimately involved all the time? Well, the second question points to some problems with believing that God has an ongoing role in creation. Now, I'm not saying this uh, undermines that idea, merely that these are things we need to consider. And in that question, what does the character of God look like if he's involved in evolution, where, for example, Many animals can only survive by killing and eating other animals or being parasites on other animals. A common quip from atheists are refuting the idea of God is to look at particular types of worms that can only live in the eyes of humans and specifically human children. What does that say about God? Well, the first thing I'd like to kind of say is this idea uh, of survival of the fittest versus the meek. And there's there's... A belief among people that the fittest organism is the strongest, and that's not true. In evolutionary theory, the fittest animal is the one, or the fittest organism is the one most suited to its environment. If strength is an advantage in the environment, then natural selection will favor it. But if it's not, natural selection will actually weed it out. For example, if calories are extraordinarily scarce, Uh, and the energy required to be strong is more than you can get from food items, strength is going to be weeded out pretty quickly. And to that measure, uh, we see that traditional power is not as dominating evolutionarily as you might think. Look at the wealthiest people in society. They also have fewer children. There's less copies of their genes reproduced and in the event of some absolute social calamity societal breakdown, their genes might be the least likely to be passed on. And, and in that case, quite literally, the meek would inherit the earth. <laughs> That's not where I plan to go with that. But so, you know, it, it doesn't just come down to power uh, or strength or domination. Uh, altruism, cooperation, those are things that are often favored in terms of evolution. If you can imagine early hominids and early humans, um There were probably more isolated and less social hominids, and they were defeated by their more altruistic relatives, the the hominids that chose to form tribes and ultimately form societies and civilization. It's it's our ability to cooperate that makes humans so dominant on this planet. I think, if we go to my opinion and the, the way I am today spiritually, evolution reflects a larger character of the universe in that... Nothing is self-creating or self-sustaining. We all rely on something else. All life on this planet requires of the constant sacrifice of the sun to collapse its own matter and release energy in the form of photons that gives this planet the energy to produce life. And that energy enters our ecosystem through plants, and then it is stolen from plants by animals. Plants die so that animals may live, and then some of those animals are eaten by other animals. They die so that other animals may live. That there is some pattern of sacrifice and renewal on the very fabric of the universe. Stars explode. Their guts are scattered across the sky, but ultimately those guts coalesce into a new nebula and even a star. On this planet, matter... That was life, becomes food, but then continues to be life. That speaks somehow to a connectedness and an interdependency, which I find sacred. And then this ultimate picture of what does it look like to be successful? Well, somehow we find peace and happiness when we transcend our individual desire for dominance and power and surrender to the goods of the group when we help others, when we cooperate Uh, Our brains reward that, and our brains reward that because evolution has rewarded that too. I've heard some theologians describe the universe, describe creation as an ongoing process uh, in which we are drawn toward God, uh, and that the value of our experiences lies in that movement toward God over time. That's not a scientific idea, but it's certainly a poetic and beautiful one to my ears. I think the danger— and trying to judge God through the lens of evolution is one, we tend to make far too many assumptions about God. And two, we tend to look at our existence from too limited a perspective. We tend to view our lives as symphonies in and of themselves, as as narratives of tremendous value, and they are. But from some other perspective, my life is merely one note in one chord in a symphony. I'm a fleeting moment of expression that will continue far after I am gone, and the symphony began far before I arrived. And I find it helpful to look at the overall arc of not just humanity, but of life and even the universe when I try to understand and contextualize the character of God. Our next question comes from the email inbox, and it reads, Hey Mike, there hasn't been much talk on dinosaurs, which is a shame because they're so awesome and ruled this world for so long. Two questions. If dinosaurs evolved into birds, is it possible for birds to evolve back into dinosaurs in millions of years? And two, what's your favorite dinosaur? Evolution will favor Organisms most suited to the environment And so if you had a set of mutations that made birds more dinosaur-like again over time And that was favored by the environment, sure And you actually do see this in the fossil records Some animals getting bigger and then getting smaller again Or, or oscillating between prey and predator, herbivore and omnivore Uh, That is precedented in the fossil record Now, what you don't have is One species, call it species A Turning into species B And then turning back into An exact copy of species A So, it is extraordinarily unlikely I don't want to say impossible, though For uh, birds to turn exactly back Into their (laughs) ancestral dinosaurs That would be very unlikely Now, one thing that's sort of interesting Our DNA contains some record of our forebears we have proteins and dna which are switched on and switched off and some of those inactive genes appear to be genes that were used in some of our ancestors and so scientists have used this in some very recent very limited experiments to block proteins and create dinosaur or reptile like features in birds. For example, you block a protein that creates a beak and you get a chicken with a snout, a sort of alligator-like snout. Uh, You can block some more proteins and see different bones that develop more and more increasingly like what we understand to be the ancestors of dinosaurs. And so some scientists theorize that this process could be used to literally with intentionality transform birds back into dinosaurs. That is nowhere near scientific consensus. There are some scientists who believe it's possible, and a few scientists are even doing experiments, again, trying to understand evolution uh, with gene expression. Uh, If it's possible, it would be a lot of work, and it would be very difficult to know exactly when you have a true, quote, dinosaur, unquote, because you're just flipping switches in DNA and looking at the outcome. And so even if you ended up with something that had like an identical skeleton to some ancestral dinosaurs, how would you know the soft tissues and other features of the animal uh, were the same as before? You wouldn't. You'd have no way to know. So you could get something dinosaur-like, which uh, may be interesting for study, um, but I find it very unlikely that you could actually replicate a true dinosaur. Now, the second part of the question, my favorite dinosaur are the sauropods, those massive herbivores. That you know are the most dramatic sites. If you watch Jurassic Park, or I'm guessing they're in Jurassic World. I haven't seen it yet. That's because I'm prone to superlatives. They were the biggest land animals that ever lived, and I would really just like to hear one walk. You know, you're talking about an animal that was the size of a herd of elephants and moved along the ground. Now, you know, they may not be feasible, even if we could get the DNA, <laughs> or we could somehow magically teleport one to now. Uh, The Earth is different than it was in those days. It is colder. We are in an ice age, even in uh, our climate change towards a warming uh, planet. We are still in an ice age. And, you know, things like the level of oxygen in the air is actually lower than it was in the days of the dinosaurs. So they may have trouble uh, functioning in our modern atmosphere, but they still remain my favorites. Uh, I could look at those bones for hours and imagine... What such a mighty creature was like. Truly, truly stunning.
1: Hey, Science Mike. I'm so extremely grateful for your work. You've legitimized most of the doubts I've been struggling with for years. Because of you, those major roadblocks in my faith have finally been obliterated, and I've never grown more exponentially towards and with God. However, there's still one major roadblock I can't reconcile. What's the situation of people with mental or learning disabilities? My brother was born with mental retardation, but from a science perspective, can the minds of people with special needs comprehend God to a degree that ultimately saves them, like how God talks about? How much consciousness is needed to acknowledge and appreciate God like how God asks for? Similarly, how about people with disorders like dissociative identity disorder, who consists of multiple personalities? Or people with psychosis who are completely different people with different sets of belief, depending if they're on or off their medication. They're still the same person. So is one version of them saved while the other isn't? Thanks for your help, Mike.
0: In my younger and more evangelical days in my walk of faith... I wrestled with an idea called the age of accountability. Now, this is a way of understanding God's salvation of man. And basically, the idea is imagine young children and imagine that the only way that people can be saved is to understand that they are sinners and that faith in Jesus can uh, rescue them from that sin, right? Right. In that model, there's a a logical problem. There's potentially a moral problem in that if an infant dies, well, infants are too small, too undeveloped in their consciousness to be aware of sin or God or, for that matter, really language. And if your view is that the only way that people can be saved is through faith in Jesus, then inevitably you believe that infants who die go to hell unless you lean into an idea called the age of accountability, meaning that uh, it's a theological construct that posits that God understands who is able to understand salvation messages or not, and because of God's justice and God's mercy, then either lets people into heaven or not. And in different points of my life, I was either very much for the age of accountability or against it because it wasn't biblical there were, there, were, there wasn't sufficient support for it in Scripture to my eyes. Uh, now this is not at all how I view salvation anymore. The age of accountability and wrestling with these ideas of who has the capacity to be saved and who does not comes down to any view of salvation that is transactional, that uh, God offers us salvation in some form and then we turn around and accept it or in the case of you know five point Calvinism, God chooses us to accept salvation and we can't resist it. Kind of wild. Uh, <laughs> Calvinists and determinists end up thinking somewhat similar things about the universe, but come to opposite conclusions because they have opposite ideas about where that determinism comes from. That's an aside. In terms of your question, I don't look at salvation transactionally. i lean towards the, the Greek Orthodox view of salvation, that God draws us to the divine, to the state of shalom, to peace, of wholeness, uh, and that we are healed in the process of moving toward God. And by looking at that as a movement instead of uh, a pendulum, who's in, who's out, who's saved, who's not, it's a matter of who's in the process of being saved, who is moving toward God who is being drawn toward God. Uh, now I tend to be a little bit of a universalist. I think that if anyone can be saved, probably everyone is. Um but in uh you know my typical way, most of my theology is is very very loose cuz I freely admit I have no idea what I'm talking about. But you know, if if we think specifically about people let's start with reduced mental capacity because of disability. Some of the people I know that have The most inhibited cognitive facilities are also the most joyful, and the most giving, and the most loving. (laughs) They are, in fact, some of the most Christ-like people I know. So do I see them being drawn towards God? Do I see them responding with grace and forgiveness? Absolutely. Absolutely I do. Uh, Let's talk about people who have some form of mental illness, dissociative disorder, those sorts of things, psychosis. Those people have health problems. Can someone with cancer be drawn towards God, even though they suffer? Absolutely. In the same way, I don't think that psychosis or dissociative states eliminate someone's ability to be drawn towards God, especially through grace and community and healing. It's all about our perspective, uh, a mysterious God we are drawn toward. Now, an interesting point in the Christian faith is Jesus. What fascinates me about the incarnation is we take a mysterious and unfathomable God and we put a human face on it. God becomes a man who tells stories, who cooks breakfast, (laughs) who teaches in parables. And the mystery becomes relatable. And so, in the Christian faith, of which I'm a part of, the way we understand God and the way we pursue this salvation, this wholeness, this completion, is to follow after Jesus, to follow his teachings, and to be a part of his church. Now, this gets me way out of evangelical land. (laughs) I'm probably leaning a little bit more towards Catholicism and the Orthodox Church and how I'm describing this process. I'm certainly I think well in line with uh the Methodist Church of which I'm a part of, so I think in your faith, if you're struggling with how can these people be a part of god or, or or how could God reject these people? I would encourage you to to hold loosely to your ideas about salvation and look at the broader church and some of the other ideas about how sanctification and how holiness and how reconciliation happen. And you may find that you are more encouraged. I know that I have been moving away from the sinner's prayer, for example, which is never found in Scripture. As as a moment when people are saved, more towards people being drawn towards God makes a lot of the weird and troubling things about our universe seem less troubling. Now, my atheist friends would say, what I'm doing here is simply an enjoyable delusion. Maybe. Maybe. But as I understand God to be this expression, this this animating force, this source of all life and source of all love and source of all peace, the only thing that can make sense to me in that great mystery is that we are drawn to this God through the Christ, the universal reconciling force that we knew in name by Jesus. Our last question comes from the email inbox, and it reads, Hi Science Mike, thank you for your podcast. It really matters to me. Here's my question. As a gay man in his 40s, I'm curious about the science of stereotypes. Specifically, why was I, as a 12-year-old boy, riding my bicycle to the library to pick up Barbara Streisand records? Why did I love Broadway cast albums so much? And this is long before I knew about the stereotypes, before I knew gay boys were supposed to love Barbra Streisand and show tunes. Does science have anything to say about this? It's a great question, and one of the things I love about this question is i it's singular. I don't have, you know, 20 variations of this question uh, sitting in the in the Ask Science Mike show file, but I would challenge part of the question by asking. Asking this question, why did I, as a 12-year-old boy, like to play with action figures? Now, that was a, a strangely difficult question for me to come up with, because I was trying to think about things in my childhood that were stereotypically straight, that were not directly related to being attracted to females. I loved action figures, I'd see ads for action figures, and I wanted to play with action figures. I still have my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the attic, and they are some of my most prized possessions. And they're just about as stereotypically adolescent straight as you get. Now, you you may say, well, you liked action figures because you saw other boys playing with action figures. And this comes down to how we make decisions about what we like and how we sound and how we move our bodies. We are social organisms, and social identity really comes into play in how we do things. My voice, you could call it stereotypically straight. Uh, I'm I'm not particularly melodic in my speech. I favor the lower registers of my voice, not just for good podcasting, but uh, that's just the way I talk. I do lots of stereotypically straight things. And so I notice in your question, you start to highlight the ways in which you differed from the heteronormative standard. Now, this idea of heteronormative is that we as a society look at people who are straight and then call that normal and any deviation abnormal. But what makes that normal to begin with? This is a bias that people have where we take the dominant or largest groups and just say that's normal. Anything else is different. But we all use social identity to shape behavior. You may find that people who self-identify as atheists have some uh, traits that seem to be common across them. Or people who identify as football fans have traits that are common across them. For example, I never wear special color jerseys on special days because people somewhere are going to go into a stadium. That's not part of my experience. Uh, But people who identify as football fans, that is part of their experience. And so you can imagine that what we call these gay stereotypes, you know, manners of speech, manners of uh, ways that they um, hold their bodies or or, or make gestures and their interests in Barbra Streisand or Broadway are social identity markers that are probably born or emerge from A desire to be more feminine. In many cases, gay men are attracted to or drawn towards femininity. Not in the way that straight men are. I like femininity. I like being around femininity because I'm attracted to it. Um, But somehow, at least for gay men I've talked to, uh, they don't want to just be around feminine people. They want to be more feminine And this may be linked to some of the biological differences between straight men and gay men. Uh, There's no slam-dunk science on that. (laughs) Believe me, I've looked. Here's the thing. Broadway, creative industries, these have been strongholds, safe places for gay men, even when society was much less safe than it is today. So is it any wonder that as on some level, by 12, you know, you're... You're uh, pubescent, pre-adolescent. Sexuality is becoming an increasing part of your identity. On some level, you probably knew your orientation wasn't socially safe. Um, And, you know, artists like Madonna were vocal early supporters of uh, LGBTQ persons, even before we had those terms. And their art became a safe place to be known, to be heard, to identify. But here's the thing. These markers, working in creative fields, you, you know, speaking in quote-unquote gay lisp, whatever, they are statistically significant, meaning they, they do show, uh, if you do a study and you have people who self-identify as straight and people who self-identify as, as gay, these attributes will be more common, but they are by no means universal or even majority. So while stereotypes really do help us cope with the complexity of reality, and they can really be helpful tools in moving and working in the world. We should never box an individual into a group stereotype. And we should always try to consciously discard our preconceptions about other people based on the stereotypes of the boxes, or the categories we put them in. Humans are natural pattern finders. We're natural boxers. We like to put things in boxes and have it be clean and neat. But the fact is, real life doesn't reflect that. I'm a straight man who hates football. I can't stand it. I don't know, well, now I have an academic understanding of why people like football, but in terms of like relating to that, it makes no sense to me. So if someone just assumes I like football because I'm a straight male from the South, they're not getting to know me. They're not understanding who I really am. In the same way that if I meet a gay man and assumes he likes Barbra Streisand, I'm not getting to know that person This comes in all things, gender, orientation, race, economic background, ethnicity. It's vital to get to know humans as individuals and not as stereotypical labels. It not only improves their life experience, it proves your own as well. Well, that puts another episode of Ask Science Mike in the books, and it has been a lot of fun for me to record this one because there's daylight outside. It's like early in the afternoon. I'm not physically exhausted because this is my work now. Uh, it's very exciting. Speaking of my work, I'm coming hopefully to a town near you in the future. I'm going to be in North Carolina at the Wild Goose Festival in July. Uh, if you Just Google Wild Goose Festival or go to my website. You can learn all about it. Uh, With the liturgists, we'll be doing our Lost and Found liturgy. It's really amazing. I'd love for you to see that and be a part of it. Uh, And uh, I'm going to be giving a talk called The Science of Peacemaking, where we go into how to be people of peace based on insights from science. Really remarkable stuff. I'm excited about it. Uh, Also in July, we're heading to the Redlands Church in Redlands, California. To talk about cosmology and creation And in the fall uh, For those of you who missed Belong We're going to do more of those Uh, We're thinking our next two are going to be Los Angeles and London Uh, So if you're on the west coast Or across the pond Watch out, the liturgists are coming your way Of course later in the year I'll be in Texas and New York And doing online events and all kinds of stuff And I would love to come to your city If you are at a church or a college, or putting on a conference, and you'd like someone to come talk about the intersection of science and faith, brain science, cosmology, doubt, all the things you hear me talk about, I absolutely love it. It is my favorite thing in the world. So if you go to asksciencemike.com and look in the upper right-hand corner, there's a button that says uh, Book Mike. You click that, and uh, my booking firm can get me there. And it would be a lot of fun to see you. Seeing people in person is my favorite thing. We need your questions on the show. The show doesn't happen unless people put questions in, and you guys are great about it. We have hundreds of questions in the pipeline, but keep them coming. There's always interesting and exciting new questions. We look at the earliest and the most recent questions every single week. So your, your chance, you've always got a chance to be on the show. You can use hashtag AskScienceMike on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube, or you can go to AskScienceMike.com and just drop a question in. We've got a form there that you can type a question, even a system where you can record a question and send it in. Of course, AskScienceMike is listener-supported. This is how i feed my family so uh if you'd like to be a part of keeping this conversation going go to asksciencemike.com click the patreon link and understand every single dollar helps you can give a dollar a month i appreciate it five dollars a month that's great If money's tight, you can change or cancel pledges at any time. Now, people who give to the show get some perks. They get to hear the show early. They get to pick the questions that come on the program. Uh, They even get to add their own questions or be an executive producer. Those are all possibilities. And now that I'm doing this full-time, I'm going to be working a lot more with my patrons to figure out what perks work, how the show should unfold, what we do in the future. Uh, These are the people... That uh, are going to help me decide Where we go over time Our show is pre-produced by Haley Hyde uh, She's great, we appreciate her work Our production is done by Greg Nordine, And of course, the song is by Jeb uh My bear-like BFF Who is a very talented uh, Studio man And musician and songwriter So he's great at making custom music If you need that done You can find him, Greg, and Haley, as well as resources for every single question that's ever been asked on the show at AskScienceMike.com. Thanks for listening, guys, and I can't wait to see you next week.